In 16 years of preaching, I have never once changed my topic and my text after the service was planned. Until now. (laughs) And I have been looking forward to preaching about Leah and Rachel for several weeks now, so I do commend that passage to you from Genesis chapter 29. Um, But some of you know that in my life as an Old Testament scholar, I have spent the last few years researching the book of Ruth. And even though I sent my manuscript on Ruth off to the editor several weeks ago, the truth is that she will not let me go. So that when I sat down earlier this week with Leah and Rachel, Ruth kept poking her head into our conversation. And since that cheeky Moabite never was a shy and retiring one, we will give her our attention in a few moments. Two weeks ago, Mike Jordan preached about unity from Ephesians 4, and we just sang about it. And he urged us to pursue the kinds of loving relationships with each other and with a watching world that would bear the weight of truth-telling. Paul called it unity. In the prayer that our Paul just read for us from John 17, Christ called it being made one being made one with each other and with the Father. And so I am curious this morning what this unity in the Spirit or oneness in Christ looks like on the ground. How do we know when we have been made one with each other? What are the signs that we are on our way to oneness with Jesus? Assuming that he was serious when he said every tree shall be known by its fruit, what kind of fruit does a church characterized by oneness produce? In the passage we just heard, Jesus' prayer for his followers, he answered that question pretty clearly. He prayed that all of them may be one so that the world may believe. Believe that you, the Father, has sent me, the Savior. He went on to say it again, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. The fruit of our oneness is believability. If we allow God to make us one with Christ and one with each other, we will convince the world of the otherwise far-fetched truth that Jesus really was who he said he was. Not just a wise man, not just a good teacher, not just a social reformer, not just a miracle worker or a prophet, but the very Son of God. In other words, the truthfulness of the gospel depends not on our apologetics, not on our ability to debate well, not on proving that the miracles really happened, but on our unity. Jesus claimed that if we could live in oneness, the world could not help but believe that he was sent by God. So, you know, not much at stake, really. So how do you think we are doing, church? Are we the body of Christ characterized by oneness? We lament the downfall of Christianity in these United States, but whose fault is that? Is it 
those liberals or those conservatives? Is it the permissiveness and vulgarity of human culture these days? Is it the rise of alternative moralities, of entitlement or consumerism or the internet? Of course, these dynamics are all involved, but something else is clearly at work too. I suspect that our failure to live in oneness with Christ and with each other has made the astonishing claims of the gospel simply unbelievable to those watching our lives. How can Jesus possibly save anyone from sin, brokenness, disease, from addiction or mental illness if, if he cannot even teach his followers to get along with others, they are saying? Why should they bother with Jesus when his followers are sometimes the most fractious, bickering, peevish squabblers around? Lord, help us. So what does it take to bear the fruit of oneness in our daily lives? Quite simply, it takes the work of the Holy Spirit to enable us to offer love instead of hate to that Facebook opponent. Joy instead of bitterness when someone else gets accolades. Patience. Uh, peace instead of Panic when our world is rocked by a diagnosis. Patience instead of irritability in a traffic jam. Kindness instead of scorn to the one who let us down. Generosity instead of stinginess to the refugee in need. Faithfulness instead of flaking out on our co-workers. Gentleness instead of harshness to our children. Self-control instead of self-indulgence with our time and money. Oneness with Christ is possible. It is offered to us by the Holy Spirit. It is the work of God in us. We will know it has taken hold of us when we find that we care for others instead of ourselves and that our care for them is ridiculously, recklessly, outlandishly more important to us than taking care of ourselves. With our very believability at stake, we need models of oneness in action. Where are people so committed to oneness that they risk everything, dig in, and actually succeed? You know, that's not easy to find, that kind of a model, which is why when it does happen, people are convinced about Jesus. The entire New Testament seems to me like one long quest for oneness. The disciples of Jesus sure did not get it right, at least not right away. James and John wanted to be first. Judas betrayed them all, and Peter went running for the shadows. Paul spent his entire career and much of his letters urging unity and oneness in the newborn church as he and the other apostles brought together Jew and Gentile, pious and pagan, rich and poor, slave and free, male and female, all under the rule of the resurrected Christ. One body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Now, there are certainly other places in Scripture where this kind of oneness is sought, but this is where Ruth has been speaking to me this week. You may feel quite familiar with her and her story, but this morning I'd like to invite you into it with some new questions. 
What might Ruth teach us, not just about life in ancient Israel, but about life in Christ? What kind of people will we become if we seek the good of others, so much so that we actually find oneness with each other and with Christ? I suggest that we will become very much like Ruth. We will care so much about being one with Christ and each other that we will not care how risky it is to walk with others. And we will not care how much work it takes to achieve their well-being. And we will not care what other people think of us along the way. And in the process, we, like Ruth, will inspire others to join with us and find unity and oneness emerging in our midst. I would like to focus this morning on the risks that Ruth took to seek oneness with Naomi. As we explore the first chapter of this perfect little story, we will allow it to ask some questions of us. What would it take to seek oneness like Ruth did? What's stopping you? What are the risks of oneness with Christ for you? What are the risks of oneness with each other for this church? What work is God giving you to do on behalf of others? And what will others think of you if you do it? And will you do it anyway? Let's begin by setting the stage for Ruth's great risk-taking. Did you know that this story is actually misnamed? Uh, It's actually a story all about an old woman and her terrible trouble. Now, Ruth, she comes to the rescue, but this is clearly Naomi's story. Every chapter ends with a scene of conversation between Naomi and some women. And every scene solves a problem for Naomi. So I invite you now to open to the book of Ruth with me. It opens like many good Israelite tales do. A man takes his family on a journey. But within the first five verses... All the men are dead, and all that's left is a poor widow, stranded in hostile territory, saddled with two foreign and apparently barren daughters-in-law. So, the first verse. Things were bad enough to begin with. Tragedy upon tragedy. In the days when the judges ruled... This should cue scary music in your mind. Dun, dun, dun. Remember, the days when the judges ruled are the days when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Seven times the Israelites succumbed to the cycle of disobedience and power grabbing, and they were conquered by their enemies until they cried out again, and the Lord sent them a judge who rescued them from their enemies. And as long as the judge was alive, the Israelites behaved. But when the judge died, they succumbed again to disobedience. And with every instance of that cycle, the depravity and violence escalated. And so by the time you get to the end of Judges, chapter 17 to 21, tell these three stories. A priest who sells his services the horrific violation and death of the Levite's concubine, resulting in all-out civil war and the near destruction of one of the 12 tribes. That's what Ruth is set in, that era. But not only was it a rough era, there was famine in the land, in the land of milk and honey. 
In the town of Bethlehem, which means house of bread, there was no bread. Famine equaled punishment in the ancient perspective. The Israelites were suffering the results of their crimes and their uh, faithlessness. And so a man from Bethlehem went to Moab. There is our third tragedy. Because Israel's contact with their kin in Moab was fraught. The Moabites were suspect. They were born from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters-in-law. Their women seduced Israel's men at the town of Shittim into into worshiping their own God, and 24,000 men of Israel were killed as a punishment. Moab controlled Israel for 18 years during this era of the judges. One of those Moabite women eventually married King Solomon, and she was part of his downfall because he built a temple to her God in Jerusalem and then went and worshipped there with her. The Moabites worshipped many gods, but their chief was Chemosh, and Chemosh demanded child sacrifice. In one battle between the nations, Moab's king sacrificed his own son on the city wall. And so given this heavy history between Israel and Moab, a sojourn to Moab was most unsuitable for an Israelite family. Only the greatest desperation would have driven them there. In one verse, tragedy upon tragedy. But it just keeps going. First, Elimelech dies in Moab, leaving Naomi and their sons to fend for themselves in Moab. They eventually took wives, Moabite wives. This was a violation of Israelite law, which forbade Israelites from marrying foreigners. And after ten years, there were still no grandchildren. But then the sons died too. In Moab. Five verses in, all Naomi's menfolk are dead, and she is alone in Moab. The daughters-in-law don't count. They aren't even mentioned there in verse 5. Because no one expects a Moabite to help this stranded, pitiful woman. Do you know anyone like Naomi? Someone who seems to attract trouble? Someone whose life is dogged by trauma. Naomi gets a lot of flack for being bitter, but who wouldn't be after the life that she lived? But then she heard that the famine was over and she set out from home. And so we heard in verse 6, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Orpah and Ruth were all set to go with her. Let's pause here and consider the magnitude of this decision. First of all, with all the husbands dead, these women were no longer legally bound to each other. Contrary to popular opinion, with both Mahlon and Kilion dead, no one in Israel was required to marry Ruth. The best chances for these three women was to go their separate ways. Marriage offered the only security for most women in the ancient world, and Ruth and Orpah stood the best chance of remarrying in their own country, where they were insiders. Naomi said as much herself in verses 8 and 9. Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, and may you find rest in the home of another husband. 
Any slim hope these barren widows had for remarriage lay in Moab, but even for Naomi, life would be easier in the long run on her own. Even worse, uh, in, in that culture, if she accepted their company, she was assuming responsibility for them. And even worse, she was showing up back home with the evidence of her son's sinful, fruitless marriages in tow, bringing home two members of the enemy in this tumultuous era of the judges. Why? Why would Orpah and Ruth even want to go with her? Would you want to tie your life to that trouble magnet that you thought of a moment ago? Would you leave your own country to move to enemy territory where you would always be the outsider? We trust God in this story, but if you were Ruth and Orpah, would you move into the territory of a God who clearly has not prevented Naomi from suffering and who might not be very welcoming of a worshiper of Chemosh? Why do they do it? Well, Naomi tells us this herself. In verse 8, they loved her. That word kindness, the kindness that you have shown to me, that's that. That's our old friend chesed. That's that fierce love that seeks the good of others at all costs. So both Orpah and Ruth had a track record of love toward Naomi and her sons. They knew she needed them even if she didn't yet. Their youth, their strength, their vitality and ability to work, they would save her life. But wanting to go her own way, Naomi got desperate, painting an absolutely ridiculous picture. She couldn't get them new husbands even if she gave birth to them herself. And then in verse 13, she turned a little bit sharp, blaming God outright for all of her trouble. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Do you know anyone like that? Someone who insists their trouble is worse than everyone else's? Who argues irrationally and tries to send everyone away so they can suffer in a noble but pitiful isolation? Is that the kind of person you want to seek oneness with? Because this is when Ruth did something absolutely reckless in pursuit of oneness with someone she loved. Orpah did the wise thing. She went back home, where she at least stood a chance of remarrying. But Ruth tied herself irrevocably to this pitiful, bitter trouble magnet with a dried-up womb, a dead family, and nothing but a hometown full of Israelites. Let's read these beautiful words of commitment again in verses 16 and 17. But Ruth replied, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. We are used to hearing these words at a wedding, but consider their original source. This speech was made by a Moabite to an Israelite, her mother-in-law, no less. Here is one of the hard truths about oneness, about unity. 
It's only even necessary because we are so different from one another. And very often, God has the gall to call us to oneness with a Moabite. This Israelite had absolutely nothing to offer Ruth. The very vocabulary of her speech in Hebrew reflects its recklessness. It could be translated, Wherever you end up, I'll be there. And wherever you find to spend the night, I will be there. Your people, those were enemies, remember? Your God, she doesn't even know if he's worth following yet. Where you die, I will be buried? Naomi is a generation older than Ruth, but when she dies, Ruth isn't going to go off to seek her own fortune. She will tend Naomi's grave and then get into it herself. Even more astonishingly, this isn't just an impassioned speech made in the heat of the moment to convince Naomi to let her go along. This is a formal, legally binding vow, sworn in the name of Yahweh and complete with a punishment should Ruth fail to keep it. Vows in Israel were only binding as long as both parties were alive. But Ruth went beyond all reason. Swearing to stand by Naomi, even in death, our own marriage vows don't go that far. This vow is over-the-top, completely unreasonable, totally unnecessary. It rendered Naomi speechless. We often think of the book of Ruth as a love story. Desperate Ruth meets noble Boaz, and they live happily ever after. But this vow actually went a long way toward preventing any future marriage for Ruth. No man in his right mind would marry a foreign, barren widow who came with another, older, needier widow. Ruth signed her life away to Naomi, seeking oneness with a bitter widow whom she loved and who needed her, but who didn't know it yet. This story isn't about finding a husband for Ruth. It's about finding a future for Naomi through the insistence of Ruth and her flabbergasting chesed. So here's the rub. Oneness sounds great, as long as it's oneness with the right people. I mean, yeah, I want to be made one with Pastor Wes and Cindy. They're great people, right? But do I have to be made one with somebody like Naomi? Someone whose life is falling apart? Who pushes me away? Who is just plain irrational and so, so empty of anything that could benefit me? Someone who blames the God I'm trying to follow? I don't know if I have that in me, frankly apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. But this is exactly what Ruth did. She pursued permanent oneness with the most unlikely person around. It was a huge risk. In that world, she was cutting ties and saying goodbye to her home forever. She was hitching her wagon to someone with nothing to offer, devoting her life to the service of someone who had lost everything and didn't even want her help. In all likelihood, these two widows would limp into Bethlehem if they even got there and then keep moving. This was the era of the judges, after all, and women on their own were extremely vulnerable. 
Israel was not always keeping its own law, so the structures and customs set up to care for widows and orphans and foreigners, these could not necessarily be depended on. Ruth was, to all intents and purposes, choosing a life of poverty to help Naomi survive it. And here is where we can let Ruth's story interrogate us a little bit if we are brave enough. Do you identify more with Ruth or Naomi this morning? Are you Ruth with a lot to offer in the pursuit of unity? Are you Naomi needing someone to stand in unity with you? As we seek oneness with Christ and with each other, what is Christ inviting you to? Is oneness with Christ or with others hard because you push people away? Or because it's too risky? Or because it involves people who are hard to love? Or because you will have to suffer? Or because oneness with anyone else seems totally irrational in our individualistic world. Now let me give you a little spoiler alert here. Uh, Ruth continued risking everything for Naomi's well-being. She risked harassment and assault by showing up in Boaz's field. Because Naomi needed food. She put herself in a terribly compromising position that night on the threshing floor because Naomi needed a permanent home. She put her body through the dangers of pregnancy and childbirth in the ancient world because Naomi and Elimelech needed a lineage. She risked everything, sweated it out in the sun and heat for weeks, and dismissed the threats to her honor and reputation, all in order to weave her life together with Naomi's. But her best intentions for oneness were not enough, and neither are yours and mine. All of Ruth's desire to join her life to Naomi's would have come to nothing if not for the hand of God in their story. Ruth and Naomi were welcomed and joined by others whom God brought alongside them. And God's providence and miraculous provision resulted in an astonishing sense of belonging together. These two childless widows ended up ancestresses of Christ. Not on their own merit, but because God partnered with them. And so in the same way, we can depend on the Holy Spirit to nurture the oneness that we know we are incapable of ourselves. I would remind you that Jesus promised whatever we ask in his name would be given to help us bear fruit. We can trust God to give what we need for oneness with him and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So I invite you to join me uh, in a few moments of contemplation as we close this morning. If you'd like to close your eyes and pray, you may. I have some questions for you again. I invite you to ask the Lord to highlight for you this morning. Is there anything keeping you from oneness with Christ, or from oneness with your brothers and sisters? What do you need to be able to offer oneness to others?
Which of those fruits of the Spirit that I listed earlier do you need more of if you're going to be made one with Christ and others? Do you need more love? More joy? More peace or patience? More kindness or generosity? Do you need more faithfulness or gentleness? Or self-control? What risks is God asking you to take so that we may be one? May it be so.